Welcome to episode 9 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my affable co-host Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. This week we have on the line Josh Hacko of Nicholas Hacko Watches. He and his father Nick are spearheading an ambitious venture to bring the incredibly intricate engineering and art of precision watchmaking to Australia trying to bring to market a domestically produced mechanical watch in Sydney, nearly the exact opposite side of the world where most of the master craftsmen of the trade can be found, is a daunting challenge, one that Nick characterizes as being more difficult than trying to breed kangaroos at the top of Mont Blanc. And Josh is at the front lines of that endeavor, bringing to bear manufacturing capabilities never before seen in Australia. So without further ado, let's cut to the interview. Well, Josh, I'd like to welcome you to the Digital Fabrication Experiment. Thank you so much. I'm really, really, really excited to be here. Thanks. Pleasure to be able to talk to you. You're in Sydney, Australia, is that correct? Correct. Yes. Down under. That's right. And you're running a day ahead of us. He is living in the future. I'll tell you what the weather's like in the future. <laughs> yeah. So when we're done, I'll get some stock tips from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we get stock tips from you guys. That's the way it works. <laughs> So I know um, Nicholas Hacker Watch has been associated with watchmaking, at least from a repair perspective, for a long time. I don't know the whole story. Where did Nicholas Hacker Watch start? Wow. Um, very, very specific question. I, I like it. It's, uh, it's difficult to pinpoint an exact time. I believe my great-grandfather started repairing watches um, just after the Second World War. Uh, but we went through some slightly different variations of what we'd call a business. Uh, my father actually was um, a refugee. He moved over to Australia in the mid-90s from ex-Yugoslavia. And so the watchmaking uh, disappeared for about five years as he was transitioning. Uh, but he started watchmaking in, in Sydney, Australia in the kind of mid to late 90s and continued all the way until now. But Nicholas Hacko Watchmaker, the brand, uh, started happening probably, uh, oh, it's difficult to pinpoint. I'd say maybe 2012 was the first idea that we kind of brought to life. But the manufacturing side, which is really what inspired me to join the team and, and head something, started in uh, mid-2015. I've seen products on the site, so I'm assuming you've made or y'all have some watches that are kind of already in the market, probably with uh, OEM movements. Is that, is that the history of the earlier watches? Correct. So from 2011 to 2015, we um, subcontracted all the parts. So we did, did the design, adjustment and assembly in-house in Sydney, but the manufacturing was done overseas. And that's still the case. Uh, for a certain uh, set of watches, but our plan is just to uh, integrate as much in-house as possible. And in-house is a weird term, but really means uh, in our factory. Right. So, I mean, y'all y'all are slowly or actually faster than I would have thought <laughs> moving towards uh, kind of a completely in-house, developing the first completely in-house movement in Australia. Is that correct? Correct. That's right. Yes. So I've got a question about um, just sort of your process. Um, I, I'm coming at this from sort of an outside perspective. Um, I would assume that watchmaking, it's a very 
it's a skill that's that's carried through sort of generationally, um, and it's got a lot of history behind it. Um, how did you guys sort of learn the the process of how to how to create a watch? And from there, are you guys sort of evolving the designs? Are you are you sort of following the old tried and true ways, or are you forging your own path forward? Ah, uh, this is this is a difficult question to answer because it, it involves me. Um exposing my trade secrets uh the <laughs> way i learned that. everything is no no i'm not secretive at all but the way i learned everything that i know uh is through literal corporate espionage um <laughs> that's watching youtube videos of watch tours and going to factories in switzerland and seeing how they did things and looking at the machines they use and the processes that they use to make parts on top of already existing knowledge uh, that's been passed generationally, but that knowledge doesn't have anything to do with manufacturing. It's got a lot to do with watchmaking and how watches work, but nothing on how to make that part. That's kind of interesting because Winston and I also learn from the internet. <laughs> of course, I mean, we're, we're doing things that can that take a lot less skill than, than you know, making a watch movement, but... Uh, I certainly can sympathize with that as a, a channel for learning. That's right. I think um, there's no such thing as a watchmaking manufacturing school. Uh, there's, there are a couple of degrees that you can do in Switzerland, and uh, they're specifically designed for uh, one set of, of, of processes. For example, small bar turning, and then you spend your whole life on just that one aspect of watchmaking but there's nothing that covers the overall idea of making your in-house movement and that's and that's just going to touch on your second part of your question question winston about evolving design uh that's the logical next step so currently we're more or less um copying an existing design and making sure that our processes work and from that point uh you know the, your dreams are your limit yeah, that sounds like a good approach for managing the risk, at least on you know a first movement. That's right. right yeah. You have something to compare it against that you know know how potentially how it works, not necessarily all the secrets that went into how it was made. Um, my understanding, mainly from reading your uh, some of the, the Nicholas Hacker watch social media posts, is in uh, Switzerland, watchmaking is distributed. Right, there's specialists and. Many of the skills, right? There's companies that do nothing but potentially make one, you know, like the gears or a particular part, the springs. Um, it's unusual to try to bring all that under one manufacturing umbrella. Doing it in Australia, I would imagine, is even, you know, even more difficult. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the challenges of developing an in-house movement in Australia without kind of all the infrastructure and I guess, deep skill set that you could normally tap, say, in the EU or even Japan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Karl Marx actually wrote something in, um, in his writings about watchmaking being the most diverse set of skills. Uh, you'd have to learn how to heat treat. You'd have to learn how to use a lathe, use a mill. You'd have to learn how to paint a dial and so on and all these things. And that's why in Switzerland... Um, it was very, very much a cottage industry. So you had one person down the road whose only job for the rest of his life was to make one specific type of gear, 
right? Because it was so specialized and there was so much knowledge associated with that one gear, how to make it perfectly. And uh, what we're trying to do in Australia is probably not that. We're not trying to get to that incredibly accurate high level of watchmaking which exists in Switzerland, but we're trying to get close. And the challenges associated are ridiculous. Uh, literally every single process that we're trying to achieve in Sydney has never been done before. So imagine um, trying to uh, possibly cut down a tree, but there's no person in your village that creates axes and you have to make your own axe to cut down a tree. That's more or less what we're trying to do in Sydney. So you've taken uh, what looks to me like very modern manufacturing tool set along with some kind of older, more traditional watchmaking uh, equipment like the Shaolin lathe. Tell us a little bit about the gear you guys had to bring into Australia and kind of how challenging that was. I'm sure you guys are the first to have many of the pieces of equipment that you have there, right? First ones in Australia to import something like that. Oh yeah, correct. Yes. So uh, every single piece of equipment in our workshop is the first and only of its kind. Uh, partly because of the capabilities that the piece of equipment has lend themselves to watchmaking or micromanufacturing, which also doesn't exist in Australia. So um, we have four pieces of CNC machinery. Uh, one is the Makino U32J wire cut machine, which is spec'd out to have uh, the capability to use 50 micron wire, which I'm not sure what that is in imperial uh, measurements, but Sorry about that, but 50 micron is uh, about the half, half the thickness of a human hair. I'm sorry, you're talking about your wire, ED, wire EDM machine? That's right, yes, the wire EDM machine. So that's the first and only of its kind. Um, the Kern, obviously, the Pyramid Nano is a ridiculously high-end machine. In fact, it far exceeds our requirements for accuracy and precision. Uh, and there's a huge, you know, respect and uh, admiration that I have for the machine and the machine tool manufacturer and for us to you know even be able to use it in Australia is a you know magical thing um, and on top of that there is a gear hobbing machine and a very small Swiss lathe that we have with a four mil maximum bar diameter and so every one of these pieces of equipment faced uh, import tax duties uh, all sorts of financial woes, bringing them in, shipping, transport. They're very big pieces of equipment. For example, the Kern is, is altogether about nine ton. And uh, our office, our factory rather, is on the third floor of an industrial estate. So it's, <laughs> it's uh, not, a, not, not an ideal position for it. And bringing it in, for example, it came in in four different crates. Uh, the tallest of which was three and a half meters tall. So we had to close roads in Sydney to get it from the port to our facility uh, in a specialized truck. Um, and it had to carve a route through the streets of Sydney that, you know, uh, avoided all the power lines and the bridges because it was so tall on, on the back of this low, low loader. And uh, a 25 ton forklift was waiting for it to be unloaded at our facility and so it's, it's in this, the largest crate, I think was six ton plus a 25 ton forklift was 31 ton rolling around, uh, on the third floor of an industrial estate. 
the fact that it's here is a miracle, right? Yeah, that sounds insane. And I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, that's just the fun just begins there because if you're the only one with that machine, you're probably pretty far away from a support uh, and logistics chain, right? For keeping something like that uh, purring. We bought the machine secondhand and uh, we bought it from secondhand dealer in uh, Switzerland who'd uh, received the machine from the Rolex factory. So it's an ex-Rolex machine. It spent six years, I believe, in production and the crude maybe, I think it was like 4,000 spindle hours. So it was barely used. And um, when we received it, it had to go under some, uh, pretty much under the knife in terms of uh, service and maintenance. And all of that was attempted to be done in Switzerland. But obviously, in a secondhand dealer's workshop, you're not using the machine. So when the machine was installed in Sydney, um, we, we had to fly over a service technician to just set the machine up to connect all the cables and make sure, calibrate the machine, level it and all these things. Uh, we realized that there were some auxiliary problems. So specifically the X-axis measurement scale, it's, it's made by Heidenhain, it's about 450 millimeters long, had um, a piece of dust in it, just one small speck of dust. And that was enough for the reader um, that slides along the linear scale to actually miss a marking. And that made, made it impossible to use the machine because uh, it would e-stop every single time it went over that marking. And so obviously you can't make parts. So we had to replace the whole measurement system, which is not a crazily expensive task. It's about you know, three or 4,000 Australian dollars for the, for the um, measurement scale. But the, the service technician was on 1,500 Australian dollars per day just waiting for the shipment of that new measurement scale to arrive from Germany. And uh, so we were just kind of twiddling our thumbs, waiting for this machine to be set up. Measurement scale arrived, but the cable that connects the, the, the reading head to the actual electronics cab cabinet was the wrong cable. So we had to wait another whole week uh, for this new cable to be sent. So two weeks, more or less, were lost. Um, Ten working days, just paying this service guy's fees. Difficult, yes. I think you, you nailed it uh, when, when, we, when you said it's difficult because of the supply chain logistics and so on, uh, to say the least, yeah. So I know I see uh, on your social media, you're, you're running the machine often. Um, and you mentioned you know, the watchmaking you learned through a combination of social media and you know being passed down generationally through your family. Um, what about modern CNC skills and machining is that uh, are you self-taught on that or is that something you were doing before you came into watchmaking well yes and no um, so specifically on the CNC equipment I received training in Germany we did a 10-day course in Kern in the Kern facility um, specifically on the Heidenhain control and how to set the machine up but everything to do with making parts was kind of left up to you. So I learned how to load a program and I learned how to do basic service and maintenance on the machine. For This is specifically talking about the Kern, but everything from that was uh, self-taught. That includes the CAD, the CAM, um, all the tooling techniques. Uh, obviously you talk to vendors and they give you advice, but 
it's you always have to figure out your own recipe um and then when it came to the other machines the turning machine uh the citizen r04 and the wire edm uh, i did receive some training along with other parts of the team um but again much of that is self-taught especially in the watchmaking industry you, you the parts are so, so specific that no one else has even tried to, you know, think about them. And so the application engineers don't really know how to help you in how to make these parts. So even if you were the best CNC operator, you'd still be starting from zero when it came to these specific parts. Yeah, you know, Winston started on a Shapeoko 2. I started on another mill. You're the first guy I know that can say, oh, my first CNC machine was a Kern Pyramid Nano. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it was the. Um, did you have any sort of mechanical inclination before starting this venture? Yes. So I um, I'm currently studying mechanical engineering, um, in my last section of the degree. But before that, I actually fell in love with woodworking. Woodworking was my passion for probably my whole teenage years. So I accrued all this woodworking equipment, and I was making cabinets and benches and all these things. And I always loved taking things apart. And I guess I was a maker. That's, you know, that kind of ambiguous term, but... A term near and dear to my heart. That's right. Yeah. We don't really know what it means, but we know how it looks like, right? Um, so I was a maker. I was a maker. A lot of the, the uh, equipment you're using to build the watch, watch assemblies is, uh, you know, modern CNC, basically robots. Uh, but you mentioned the woodworking and kind of hand building. Um, there was a piece of that going on when you guys first got started, right? Tell us a little bit about the walk, watchmaker workbenches that you made. Yeah, that those are fantastic, fantastic workbenches. Very dear to my heart. Um, it, when you start something like this, uh, you don't know what you don't know. So when we started uh, that venture, we had to find out if we needed workbenches. And so we just trialed a bunch of workbenches. And obviously there were existing watchmakers workbenches, but they were really expensive, ridiculously expensive, usually imported from Switzerland. And you're talking about three or 4,000 Australian dollars per bench. And uh, I kind of looked at my father and said, hey, why don't we just build our own? And we did some basic measurements, um, figured out that bench needs to be about 900 mil high and the chair that you have to sit on has to also be a specific height. And we went down to the local wood store and bought all the equipment, bought all the uh, planks that we needed to laminate together. Um, and we made it out of this beautiful Queensland maple, which is an extremely Australian wood. It's not like your, um, I think it's hard rock maple. We've got uh, rock maple, sugar maple. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've, I've used some American uh, varieties and it's very different. The Australian maple has such a, quite a thick grain, compressed grain. And uh, it turned out, turned out that um, <laughs> we had to make another five or six benches. And so since then, we've been making watches, but also every two or three months, we realize that we also have to make a new bench for a new piece of equipment or a new person joining our team. So yeah, watchmakers and carpenters together. Everything you guys build out there is beautiful. Um, but tell us a little bit more about, you, you do quite a bit of, uh, or at least certain processes are purely by hand, right? Some of the fine finishing on say the 
I can't remember what the name of the component is, the brass component. Yes, the main plate, the brass components, they undergo a substantial uh, transformation when it comes to hand finishing. So the, the part, for example, the main plate, I can do a small case study on it now. It, it's a 26-minute cycle time in the kern to get the part uh, 80% of the way there in terms of machining. Then it goes uh, a small cutting operation in the EDM, which takes about 10 minutes. So you, you're at 35-plus minutes in machine time. And then it takes about three hours to hand finish the main plate after that. So it does, uh, it does take a long time to get it from a machined state to a sellable state, a beautiful state, really. So we do uh, polishing and buffing and deburring with a uh, micromotor spindle. That's, you know, we, we've probably scrapped hundreds of parts <laughs> figuring out the process just on that side. And then we do a, a very classic watchmaking finish called perlage. It's probably more commonly known as engine turning, where you place these circular grained dots on, on the uh, main plate. And the reason why we do that is actually to cover up the machining marks. So some people love the machining marks. There's adaptive tool parts and all that stuff. But in a watchmaking uh, setting, if it looks as smooth as possible, it's fantastic if it looks as um, uh, regular as possible then that's even better so uh, the perlage does take a long time and uh, it's very easy to stuff up so we have a very high failure rate with um, the decoration and uh, I guess I don't want to brag too much but I think we got really good at it in a very short period of time <laughs> yeah that's some of the my favorite stuff to see that you guys post is uh you know, some of the, the finishing processes mm, you're awesome. doing, uh, just amazing. <laughs> and we'll have your, uh, Instagram, uh, information in the show notes for anyone that hasn't seen Nicholas Hacker watch and the stuff they're posting. It's a good mix of, uh, kind of what's going on in the, in the workshop along with the actual, uh, components that you're building and some really nice, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of engineering, but in some ways it's also art. Yeah, it's uh, probably one of the few fields. I know knife making is quite similar. There's a lot of art that goes into knife making. Uh, woodwork as well. There's that engineering aspect, but the need to make it beautiful. But watchmaking is, um, it, if, if it doesn't look beautiful, you can't actually sell it. Uh, so it's, it's completely, bizarrely really, it's, it's um, dependent on its beauty, but just as dependent on the need for it to work at like a crazy 100% duty cycle for, you know, 50 years, right? If I wanted to watch it just that worked, I would buy an Apple iWatch, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> but I only wear mechanical watches for a reason, yeah. So kind of where are you guys as far as uh, progress on the in-house movement? Is that going to be featured in products? Is it next year? Or if you can say, I mean, kind of how close are you to having something that you guys could... Uh, put up for sale yeah uh I'd, I'd like to say as soon as possible <laughs> but for us our tentative goal was uh christmas to have um 25 pieces made by christmas this this year 
but unfortunately, we actually ran into some issues with um, the, the final parts of the process. So all of these brass components um, need to be plated, either nickel plated, then gold plated, or rhodium plated, or uh, some other cosmetic platings to prevent corrosion, to prevent oxidization of the, of the brass components. Now, we, we sent off some samples to local electroplaters here, but it turns out that no one in Australia has really done uh, electroplating on parts this small and also this intricate with tight tolerances associated with it. So we can't just lay on 10 microns worth of nickel and then a couple of microns of gold because we'd blow out all of our tolerances. Um, so finding this uh, partner for this last process has been really, really difficult. We've spent maybe two or three months looking for someone to help us out. And it's gotten to a point where we've just decided to move that process in-house as well. Um, and that's a very unfortunate thing uh, because it means that now two or three people that work here have yet another discipline to master because you can't just averagely plate a part. You have to master it before you can even, you know, say that it looks good. Uh, so that solution might be another two or three months away. And so we're looking maybe March 1 if, if, if things go as south as we've, you know, been seeing in the past two or three months. Partly because I'd probably have to fly over to Germany to pick up the equipment and receive training in how to do that in, in Pforzheim in, in Germany, where it's like a watchmaking hub for this electroplating business. It's bizarre, really. Um, and then not only that, but you also have to actually plate the parts, which might take weeks as well. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that you're you're finding that processes just aren't going to work for you unless you bring them in-house, especially... Uh, you know, considering how far away you are from kind of the watchmaking, you know, centers of the world, right? So can imagine how frustrating that is. You know, we see that you mentioned the knife makers, right? I, I can name quite a few uh, instant insta machinists that have, you know, brought like in anodizing, got, you know, frustrated with third parties and brought it in house because they were so perfectionist about the, you know, the results they wanted to get. Um, it seems to be, you know, the more you control, the better that product's going to be though. So are you and your dad kind of the primary watchmakers there? Or um, I'm not really sure how big your organization is. Are they primarily watchmakers? Are you kind of a mix of, I wouldn't say machinists, but people that tend to work with the CAD and CAM and then those that tend to really focus on kind of the old world watchmaking skills? Or is it kind of everyone does everything over there? Yeah, we are a very small team. There's about eight staff in the company and uh, that's not necessarily all focusing on the manufacturing side of the business. There's a strong uh, buying and selling or secondhand dealing element to the business, which is actually what <laughs> funds this whole venture. Uh, so we have admin staff on that side that help us out. Um, there's also watchmakers who don't necessarily work in the manufacturing side of the business, but they, uh, they do have an input into what goes on. So for example, in the factory, there are two people currently, Andrew and myself, who are running the machines and doing the CAD and the CAM. And we might make a part, uh, but we have no idea if that part is good or not. We can measure it a thousand times. We can you know, uh, 
put our go no go gauges and gauge pins inside to check all the tolerances but it does have to fit into an assembly and we can't really do that i can try i can attempt it but i don't have the experience or the touch or the feel that only generations uh well, not generations, but years in front of a workbench can give you. So we send the parts to our office in, in the CBD of Sydney where the watchmakers are um, stationed. So we have two apprentices as well as my father. And they more or less say, this needs to be changed. This needs to be adjusted. We need to lower this plane by 20 microns or something like that. And they send all that feedback back to us and we remake the parts. And that's probably not the most efficient way of doing it, but it's the only way of doing it. Uh, for someone to be trained in every single discipline of CAD and CAM and machining, as well as all the facets of watchmaking, it'd be too much. So yeah, it's, it's a small team. We, uh, we pride ourselves in that because I think we get a lot accomplished with the least amount of people. But I wish we had more people to join us. And we've just recently posted um, an application for uh, a new engineer or a, possibly a machinist or a watchmaker. So we'd probably hire three people if we got the right three people tomorrow, you know. So you mentioned, you know, assembly of the watch movement is a skill in itself, right? Um, and you're building... I'm a, you know, traditionally, at least uh, like Swiss watches, they're built to last at least a hundred years. Um, and I know you, I know Nicholas Hackle watch has at least one watch brand that, or one model that has a 50 year warranty. Is that in the back of your mind as you're designing, you know, that this is a part, even, even though it's so small, it has to last, you know, it's a dynamic movement, right? So there's friction, there's all kinds of stuff going on in there. Um, I think to me, that's like outside of the norm of what I think of when I'm doing any kind of mechanical design, um, that, that kind of added longevity that you have to target as you're designing and assembling and selecting materials and all that kind of stuff. How challenging is that? And kind of what's your goal for, uh, the in-house movement for Nicholas Hackle watch? Is that going to be that really long life that's typical of high-end watches? Yeah. For sure, uh, the in-house movement is a development upon that 50-year guarantee. I think even though we might not uh, publicly advertise it as having a 50-year guarantee, we want it to last much more than 50 years. And so on a design level, there are very, very many considerations that you can take into account where um, parts can be designed in specific ways that make them very cheap to produce or they can be designed in ways that make them very expensive to produce, but you will never have to replace them, or you might replace them only if they're intentionally broken or something like that. Uh, one example I can give you is in regards to the pinions. And so a pinion, uh, for those who don't know, is just a gear with, uh, usually in watchmaking, very small axles that fit in uh, these bearings that we call jewels, that literal synthetic rubies but there is an element of friction of friction on those shafts and also an element of friction on the leaves of the pinions the actual uh, gear teeth and so a very cheap method of production would be to uh, hob the gears and 
out of a pinion blank and more or less straight out of the machining process, put them into a watch. Uh, you might harden them or something like that. But a way to make them last for an exceptionally long time is to do two things. First is to polish the internal uh, root as well as the flank and the, the uh, profile of the gear teeth. So they're more or less mirrors, which reduces the friction because the surface uh, finish is very high due to its polished nature. But then also burnish the axle of either side of the pinion. Now we're talking about pinions occasionally that are just a couple of hair thicknesses in diameter. And we're burnishing that's extremely small, right? And you're polishing gear teeth and uh, burnishing these axles which, you know, you might have a 1% success rate or something like that in making a good part. So it, it, it becomes extremely cost prohibitive to make, make this if you're looking for a cheap watch. But if you want something that lasts generations, really, it's the only way of doing it. And that's a hand process, right? That polishing and burnishing, I'm, I'm assuming just for one gear, it must take hours, if not days to get the result you're looking for yeah it's a, it's a completely hand um, hand operated process so you might have a machine that rotates a disc with some diamantine powder or something embedded in the in the in the wood of the disc uh, but you do have to manually position that tiny pinion so that the uh, disc polishes each individual tooth and uh, it, a lot of considerations there in regards to how you actually hold that pinion. It's, you can't have it uh, with stock to leave and things like that. It has to be almost done in that finishing stage. So yeah, you, you, it might take a day, you're right, but um, not, not due to the, the length of the actual polishing process, but due to the failure rate. Just sort of from, a, again, an outside perspective, um, what's sort of like the, the start to finish duration for a watch it sounds like there are there are hundreds or thousands of hours that go into a part like or a an entire watch piece like this um how long does it take you guys or how much labor goes into a single watch yeah quite a lot i haven't sat down and calculated the full amount partly because we're still doing r&d and some things would be unfair to say you know take two months for example for a part but if you take in consideration the whole process uh it starts with a sketch on a piece of paper, an idea really before the sketch, and you go through the iterative design process in CAD, and that might take a certain amount of time, a couple of days or something like that. From CAD, <clears throat> you sit down with, <clears throat> excuse me, you sit down with your process people, or for example, for me, it's Andrew, and we discuss how we're gonna actually make this, you then sit into CAM. Uh, that might take a long time, especially if you're making a new fixture or a new jig. From CAM, you might get a finished prototype. Uh, you might go through a couple of revisions of prototyping. For example, with the main plate, we went through at least 50 revisions, um, each one having maybe a new fixture associated with it. Or at least we, we made at least three fixtures, for example, from scratch, and that takes you know two or three weeks to make this fixture. After CAM, you might do uh, hand finishing processes or heat treating or 
bunch of um, final steps to make the part look beautiful. And that's where the real time gets sunk in outside of an R&D perspective. And then assembly. And assembly can also take a very long time because you have two parts. You have pre-assembly and then final assembly. Pre-assembly meaning if you have this pinion and then a large gear associated with the pinion, you have to uh, mate them axially. So that means riveting them together, really. And uh, that also has a failure rate associated with it. And uh, not every gear is made exactly the same. So you have to match gears and you have to match pinions together. And that can take a long time. So if if you take this whole R&D perspective, it took us nine months to make, yeah, nine months to make 25 watches. And we're not even done yet. From a perspective of next year, so if, if we started you know, the whole process again next year with all the things uh, figured out, so the process made, the CAM done, CAD done, all, all sorts of those things, you could easily say 200 hours per watch, maybe 300 hours per watch. That is an incredible amount of craftsmanship and it, it sort of just puts the prices of these things in a perspective for me as to why they might have the cost they do. Um, do you think that with the current watch design that you're going for, that uh, this is something that's sort of going to um, be a, a product that you continually produce? Or do you want to sort of produce a batch of something and then make a new design or, or keep keep trying to find or, or innovate? Constant innovation is the key. R&D is a perpetual thing. It never ends. Um, the trick is to figure out how you can still make money <laughs> while doing R&D. Um, so obviously we've, we've spent all this time making a process, uh, we will continue to make these watches. So the first batch, let's say is 25 watches in the next coming years. I don't suspect that we will stop making these watches that are identical to the first 25. Um, partly because there is a, there's a massive demand. I think, uh, we don't fully understand how many people want this watch, but I think if we put a pre-order out now, we'd be sold out within you know, less than a day. Uh, so there's a demand and we'd, we'd like to fulfill that demand from, from a purely selfish perspective because we make money from it. But also if, uh, if we've invested all this time into a process, we can see it you know, continue. But uh, I can tell you right now that I've got a thousand and one ideas for the next caliber, for the next movement um, to be placed in maybe a different style of watch. Hey, just kind of looking at your your setup there, I'm assuming it's always going to be kind of a, an exclusive low production number uh, product, right? Because, you know, other than I know the Citizen, you've got a bar feeder, you can crank out parts kind of pretty continuously yes. with that machine. But yeah. the, the the setup on the current, especially like when I watch you make the main plates that uh, if I'm not mistaken with the fixture you're using, you're kind of doing one one body at a time. Um and it may have just been the prototyping, but I think that's probably going to be your production workflow too. Uh, it's very, you know, very close to kind of the old craft. You make, you kind of own it from end to end, right? And make that watch or all the parts related to it together, and then yeah, um, move on to the next one, right? And and I'm going to steal that fixture idea, by the way. <laughs> I love your, <laughs> your main plate fixture. I, yeah, I'm slowly evolving towards something like that for my little. Uh, five axis pocket in C, but, uh, yeah, that was a clever solution that, well, 
yes and no. It does have its downsides. I think with social media, you only see the best parts of <laughs> of that fixture or of that process. Or don't give away our secret. <laughs> oh no, there's there's a lot of downsides to that. Firstly, um, uh, I mean, this is probably really useful for you because I've I've gone through all these iterative steps. I mean, the and, and made these mistakes, I guess, for you. Um, if you don't have uh, an accurate way to set your kinematic point on a five-axis machine, this kind of fixture actually is not very good. Um, you'll notice that uh, a translation between, for example, C0 and C180, so flipping the part over 180 degrees, might have a, um, a Z-height error. And that actually... Is, is problematic in two ways because the the A axis or the B axis, depending on your machine, might not be perfectly level with the the flat side of the um, fixture. So you might have a tilt associated with it. So at one side of your part, you might be bang on on your tolerance, but because of an angle that gets multiplied twice, you might be uh, millimeters away from the the tolerance that you're going for on the opposite side of the, the part so it's, it's a bit difficult to explain in words but uh, you do have to make this fixture extremely accurately um, obviously it depends on the tolerances that you're chasing and i don't expect you to be chasing microns on on a, on a pocket nc but um i i can for sure like i'd be more than happy to send my designs and my i guess design notes on on how this fixture can be made accurately but cheaply as well yeah i i know exactly what you're talking about it's it's especially with five axis there's you know kind of a stack of tolerances there to deal with uh more so than on three axis machine uh, you, you've addressed it pretty well by just starting with the current yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right helps a lot with that but uh but uh yeah you know i'm still i'm still kind of mastering five axis here and uh getting accurate results i'm starting to see some good Good stuff. It's more my skill improving. The machine's always been very capable, but uh, I'm kind of getting better at, at getting the best out of it. But it's a slow process. And I can imagine holding the tolerances that you guys are, are, are striving for. Just incredible work. Mm. Speaking of fixtures, um, I've been following very intently your Tombstone Vice for your, for your Pocket NC. So tell me more about that. I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, so the, I think the cat's out of the bag now because um, it's been posted. So that was a little, I designed it here. Uh, my goal was to really have a, kind of a high throughput option for making some, will probably be index three plus two axis stuff uh, where I could just make four or eight parts at a time. There's some small parts I have in mind, um, everyday carry stuff that I can actually fit like two sets of stock on each of the faces. So eight, I, I can make eight parts per setup. Um, but the actual tombstone I designed was, I mean, I could probably make it on the shape Oko that I have here. Um, I'm probably don't have enough Z actually, it'd be kind of difficult, but it had some really long pockets, deep pockets from top to bottom. Um, Cause I was trying to keep the weight down. So I didn't put too much weight on the, on the rotary axis on the pocket and C. So I kind of mentioned that I was looking for some help uh, from some other instant machinists and actually John Saunders stepped up <laughs> and uh, Ed Reese, he works for him, reached out and uh, offered to 
make me two of them because I have one that I'm going to put four vices on, like a quad vice, and the other one's going to be for custom fixturing. So I'll just drill some or machine some some features into the second one for like clamps and Mighty Bites or something like that. Um, but yeah, so that's going to be, uh, I'm going to have a Saunders, ma- Saunders manufacturer tombstone here probably next week. Really looking forward to testing that out. Wow, that is super exciting. And also Winston, I just saw the video that you posted uh, as a, more or less a follow-up for you, from your work holding experience at IMTS about your, um, I, don't, I don't know what I should call them, the, the clamps, um, the low profile fixtures, right? I call them moity bites. Well, that's that's really good that's really good i didn't want to infringe on any copyright by um by saying anything yeah no I, i've been tr- that's why i just i call them low profile clamps but internally like just to myself i call them uh mediocre bites chihuahua clamps <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think Winston, you um you were inspired by what you saw with titan right uh titan gilroy had that big uh titanium lion's head that he the yeah, lion like yeah. just trying to figure out how to work hold a, a large piece of round stock and i saw that and it seemed super elegant and uh, i thought that it could be adapted to uh, more low-tech manufacturing setups like mine so uh, it's, it's a fun experiment i'll definitely continue to uh, play around with that idea and refine it um, but really the only reason i, I pushed that project up was to sort of uh go toe-to-toe with your uh, tombstone idea and use the pocket and see as an indexed uh, fourth to do all the finishing operations on the clamps. So fun little rivalry rivalry going on. That was really impressive um, that you made the fixture on the pocket and see and then more or less you could have kept it in the pocket and see and then just loaded the clamps. I think you had to tap the holes. Did you t- tap the holes in the, in the pocket and see? I tap them on the pocket NC uh, using a hand drill um, just because the, the T-handle um, little tool that I have, just it's, it's not quite good enough. Um, so I just I actually tap them with a little 12-volt uh, drill. Uh, thankfully, it didn't turn the axis or um, the, the stock. And uh, so everything stayed aligned from my initial setup. And from there, it was just a matter of bolting on the, uh, the little clamp bodies that I had and adding the little bevel and the little uh, nose on the front. Mm. And Winston, I, I don't want to thread shame you, but I know you know how to thread mill because I've seen you do it. <laughs> I, I only have a single thread mill though, and its diameter is just a little bit too large for internally threading uh, quarter 20. Yeah, I, mm. I got you. Uh, just another quick question on that fixture for the um, low profile clamps. Uh, what happens if you take the fixture out? and try to put it back in. Do you have a feature to indicate off? The thought was um, eventually to be able to do that, but right now uh, my pocket NC, it actually needs an axis recalibrated. Um, so that um, little miniature tombstone was a sort of a one-off. So in the future, um, I'll try and machine a feature uh, such that I can maybe put pins in the B-axis table and be able to sort of reference off that and just like sort of maybe turn the the fixture until um, maybe a, a, a dowel rod that I stick through it uh, contacts one of those pins um, or or maybe insert that fixture into something that I bolt onto the B table. So if I have a plate um, that bolts to the B table and a small hole in it um, where the bottom of my little riser is has maybe a square or triangular profile that aligns into that plate, um, that can be an option. So I could just uh, remove that fixture and install another one. 
I had uh, I had done a similar fixture um, and ran into the same problem. I had thought of a way to index it or to make it repeatable in Z with using a, like a split collar um, that went over the bar, but I forgot about indexing it <laughs> on the on the B axis. Yeah, but I, I think I have a solution now that kind of leverages the uh, shaft collar. It's a like precision ground shaft collar that yeah, it'll actually have like a little extension doing exactly what Winston's talking about. It'll it'll have a the pocket in C has some dowel holes on the bed so you can align you can index something on the B axis when you reinstall it through the central collet. So I'm gonna try that, see how accurate it is pretty soon. Yeah, uh, that system that you're talking about is actually very widely used in the EDM work holding sphere um, system 3r and aroa both have these systems that more or less just uh, are dow pins touching each other to locate uh, uh, quite a large assembly and um, it, it's if you have if you have if you're wondering about if it's viable or testable or provable i mean there's a whole industry that's that's formed on this specific idea that you guys have come up with yeah, actually, we talked about it a couple episodes ago. I, I'm working with another Insta machinist, uh, Chris Lee. I think it's Chris Lee Design on Instagram. Um, he's making a kind of a cheap Irwa knockoff that I designed. So I'd be able to have, you know, the Irwa design's kind of split, right? So you can have a base plate and then you can take the top part off, right? And put a different fixture on or a different vice or whatever. So we're going to see, how, I'm gonna, I have something coming probably in a, uh, once he's back from Japan, I think he's on vacation right now, but once he gets back, um, I think he can finish it. I think I'm trying to come up with a design like that for the pocket in C2 so I can actually just very quickly and repeatedly switch out the top work holding without really changing the base plate. Um, but yeah, that was stolen from uh, from the wire EDM world with uh, some suggestions from Marvin, who we had on the show earlier. Yeah, he was kind of steered me towards that as a simple solution. Speaking of which, uh, he's at Kern. Um, he was he was a guest a few weeks ago, and he mentioned that Kern. Yeah, he said Kern's uh, doesn't do much on social media, but they do post a lot of uh, Nicholas Hacker watch <laughs> the reposts. So I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's it's, a, it's actually hilarious because um, both of their Instagram accounts started up straight after IMTS, and I have to wonder if. Um, this Insta machinist or uh, I guess Instagram uh, makerspace sphere has influenced their decision to open up their Instagram accounts. Uh, and if so, that would be a hilarious set of circumstances because here are we, you know, just regular dudes influencing a multi-million dollar company uh, to start up an Instagram account. Yeah, I think it helped having uh, Marvin on the show too, because you know we kind of talked about you know conservative German uh, MT machine tool builders just not you know kind of missing out on the whole uh, instant machinist thing. So uh, yeah, I'm starting to see that change. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was more more due to IMTS and everybody else uh, kind of sharing. But uh, <laughs> I'd like to I'd like to pretend we had some of the, the podcast had a little bit to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So uh, I really appreciate your time. I know you guys, uh, you guys are still kind of in the R and D phase, uh, about to have twenty five uh, products or twenty five of your first sample. I guess I'm really excited to see that. 
Um, anything else you want to share with us or kind of in particular about watchmaking in Australia? Are you guys, uh, are you starting to start the nucleus of a, a new watchmaking center there? I mean, is it a skill you plan on sharing? Like we were talking about in Switzerland, you know, do you want to build that infrastructure of, of specialists that, um, so you don't have to do it all in-house forever, you know, spreading the skill, I guess is what I'm asking about. Yeah, for us, the dream would be for 10 more of these types of companies to exist in Australia. I wish there were 10 other people with Kerns and 10 other people with small diameter citizens and gear hobbers and all these things. Because that would mean that, A, there's a demand for this skill and B, that the knowledge could be shared amongst all these companies. And ultimately, I'd probably specialize in one thing. I might specialize in main plate production, hypothetically, or something like that. And someone else would specialize in something else. The labor per watch would decrease, but also the quality would increase because uh, obviously we talked about that specializing niche cottage industry benefit. We are actively trying to encourage that. So we try to hire as many people as possible. And it's really just a finding the right fit for our team. So uh, we, that's, that's a, a matter of education. It's a matter of, of going to secondary schools and, and telling people that, you know, you don't have to necessarily go to university to have a fulfilling career or you can make stuff with your hands and it can be viable. And especially with um, watchmaking because it's a, it's a luxury goods industry that pays very well and that's what a lot of people care about. But more than that, it's uh, extremely diverse. So you'll never get bored. So you can start a career today and you'll never reach the end of it. Endless amount of specialization. And I guess on, on, on that note, um, our kind of midterm plan is to open up a teaching school in, in our new factory, which would be located about two hours south of Sydney, which we've already started uh, I guess building in, in one way or another and that should hopefully be the home for watchmaking in Australia at, at the smallest and maybe even Oceania at the largest <laughs> you guys definitely don't lack for ambition I'll give you that um, <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever make it back to Australia I actually used to live there when I was a kid but no uh, I would love to come back someday and see where you guys are going with this um it just really sounds fantastic for both Australia and and uh, for watchmaking in general. Yeah, uh, our, our modus operandi is very different to the Swiss. The Swiss are extremely secretive. They're they're very close knit and and not very eager to share information. But that's the one thing we want to do. I, I probably do a factory tour every you know two weeks if I can find someone to drag into my factory. You know. Uh, Whereas you'd never be able to even step foot in, in, a, in a Swiss factory unless you had a very, very personal connection with someone. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about learning. I think that's, that's one thing I probably should have stated at the start of this where we don't really care about the product as much as we do about the process and teaching people the process. And we're teaching ourselves the process, more importantly. But uh, if we die with that knowledge, then the industry dies. Yeah, it's, I've never seen 
the in, like the internals of watchmaking in as much detail as I've seen on your social media. So that's kind of really getting me into it. I see a lot of uh, kind of you talk about those individual skills, like somebody a watchmaker talking about a particular process that they're doing, usually on a repair, but uh, kind of just seeing the end to end movement come to life is that's been eye opening for me. So I really appreciate it. I hope you guys continue to to uh, keep that open mindset. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we will. Wish you the best of luck. It sounds like uh, if you can keep that spark alive, you might have a transformative impact on uh, the uh, Australian manufacturing scene. Hopefully. Uh, it's As you said, I think we're more ambition than, than anything else currently, but... Uh, I guess this is the path that my father and I chose and we're extremely passionate about it as I hope that translates. Um, and I guess that's all that you really need. You need that passion to kick it off. At least that's what I've been told. So Australia's got a very rich history of manufacturing um, that's unfortunately taken a downturn in the past maybe 20 years that hopefully something like this could possibly revive. Hey, Josh. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Um, sorry we couldn't have your dad on too. Hopefully we'll get to do that again uh, maybe next year when he's, when he's got a moment to sit down with us. But uh, really appreciate you sharing your story with us. And uh, we'll be watching you on social media. And if you ever make it to the U.S., let us know. And uh, you know, if you come to IMTS or something, we'd love to meet up with you. That's definitely on the books. I'd love to do that. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Good morning. Good morning. That's right. Yeah. Good morning. <laughs> I wish you the best of luck, and I, uh, I hope to cross paths with uh, some of your products, perhaps decades down the road. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much.